The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Susan Mulvihill is passionate about growing vegetables. Her organic growing methods and pest control have yielded some mighty good eating. She and her husband, Bill, live and garden on five acres in Spokane, Washington. Their large raised bed garden, where they grow all sorts of edible crops, has been featured on the popular public television program, Growing a Greener World, hosted by Joe Lample. In the last year, Susan's book, The Vegetable Garden Pest Handbook, has proven to be very popular nationwide. She is also the co-author of the Northwest Gardener's Handbook. Helping other gardeners be successful has driven Susan to produce and host over 400 YouTube videos on her channel, Susan's in the Garden. She is the longtime garden columnist for the Sunday edition of the Spokesman Review in Spokane, Washington. She has been a Spokane County Master Gardener for over 20 years. Susan's website can be found at susansinthegarden.com. It contains resources for organic pest control, along with many other guides designed for successful gardening. This is episode 47, Developing Your Battle Strategy for This Year's Bug Wars with Susan Mulvihill. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Susan, it's my understanding that there are over one million bugs that have been identified in the world. Why should we not be freaking out about that? That's a great question, because I think as gardeners, we have a tendency to think that there's all of these horrible bugs out there and that their main goal in life is to destroy our gardens. But that isn't the case at all. So only 1% of the insect species that have been identified on our planet are actually the damaging types. That means the remaining 99% are either beneficial insects, so things like pollinators or predatory insects, or benign insects. And an example of a benign bug would be one that aids in the decomposition of organic matter. Yeah, I want to put things into perspective and make people realize there are so many good bugs out there. I guess it really just boils down to your bug tolerance. It really does. It's so important to understand what kind of bug you're dealing with and also put the damage that they're causing into perspective. If it's a little bit of damage to a plant where you're not going to eat the part that they're feeding on, then maybe you might tolerate that a little bit. If they're damaging the leaves of a plant and that's what you're going to be harvesting and eating, Well, then, yeah, you need to take some steps and see if you can control them using organic methods. What's your battle strategy for this year's bug wars? A thing that I like to do is I use the concept of integrated pest management in my garden. 
People know that as IPM. It's a systematic approach for dealing with problems in your garden. And actually, that can apply to problems with insects, plant diseases, or even critters that come to your garden. But today we're talking about insects. I'll just explain how that works. The goal is to come up with a solution that has the least impact on the environment. If you're having a problem with insect damage, the first thing you need to do is to really be good about monitoring your garden frequently and then daily, preferably. That way you can see how your plants are growing. If you see an insect you haven't spotted before, take the time to identify the bugs so you know what you're dealing with. If the bugs are causing damage, that's where you do need to think about your bug tolerance and decide on a course of action. It might be something as simple as hand picking them off your plant or spraying them off the plants with a jet of water from your hose. But if the problem gets worse, that's when you need to think about other types of strategies. So maybe you can make a trap to catch them, or you could apply some type of an organic spray or use some other type of a strategy. Now, the thing with IPM that I don't agree with is that the final option for pest problems is to use a chemical pesticide if nothing else works. I cannot bring myself to do that because I know chemicals cause more problems than they solve. So I don't use that as a solution. The reason they cause a lot of problems is many chemicals, probably most pesticides, are non-selective. That means that, sure, you kill the damaging insect that you're trying to get rid of, but it also kills beneficial insects that probably would have taken care of the problem for you. Also, insects build up a resistance to pesticides. When I was doing some research for my book, I discovered that Colorado potato beetles and spider mites in particular are very resistant to chemicals. So that's a good reason to avoid using them. The thing that I always want people to know is there are a lot of options for dealing with bug problems organically. Of course, the last thing I always do and I encourage people to do is to document what the resolution to the problem was. How well did it work? If it didn't go well, write down what you would try differently if you have the problem again the next year. That's what I like to follow in my garden. Number one is monitoring the garden frequently. Number two is identifying what you're dealing with and then coming up with environmentally friendly method of controlling them. How would you proactively do that? Would you be trying to attract the beneficial insects? You were talking about having good bugs that take care of the bad bugs. How does that work? Well, I've been learning an awful lot about them over the last couple of years. There are a lot of things we can do within our landscapes that will attract more of them. Certainly, the number one thing is to avoid the use of pesticides. The other thing is you want to take a look at your landscape. It really needs to be diverse. So you should have trees of different sizes, shrubs, flowers, native grasses. The main thing is lots and lots of flowers. I've never met a gardener yet who objects to being told to plant more flowers. <laughs> the goal is that when you're choosing different types of flowers to grow, you want ones that have different types of flower heads. And that's because beneficial insects have all different kinds of mouth parts. And so you want to be able to accommodate all the different kinds that could come into your garden. Another thing you can do is to leave leaf litter underneath the shrubs. That's because it provides habitat for things like beetles and ladybugs, especially to overwinter in. 
I know we gardeners like to have a really tidy garden and everything, but that is a simple thing you can do is to leave that leaf litter in place. If you have some rocks or logs, depending upon what your landscape is like, that's a great place for beetles to hide under. And there are a lot of really great predatory beetles in our gardens. Another thing you might consider doing, and this looks cool anyway, is to interplant flowers and herbs with your vegetables. So things like marigolds, zinnias, sunflowers, nasturtiums, chives, because they bloom. What's going to happen is those flowers are going to attract pollinators. So that's a good thing to have in your garden. They will also attract different types of beneficial insects. While they happen to be checking out your flowers or your herbs, they're going to see problems in the form of pests occurring on the vegetable plants and hopefully leap into action for you. How easy is it to identify a good bug versus a bad bug? You certainly can't say, oh, that looks like it's a bad bug because it's got red eyes <laughs> <laughs> or it's got mandibles or something like that. It is a bit challenging. I have some good suggestions for ways to identify them or get them identified for you. First thing is, if you have a magnifying glass to where you can really look at the details of what their body is, that's helpful. Of course, we all have our cell phones with us all times, right? Mm -hmm. If you take a picture and then zoom in on it, you can really look at the details of their bodies. Then what I do is I go to my computer and I do a web search and I describe what the bug looks like. Let's say black beetle with purple on back or something like that. So that's describing a ground beetle. What happens is you get the results to your search and you look at the images and just scroll through the pictures to see if anything jumps out at you as being the same kind of bug you're dealing with. Of course, that's not going to be 100% because there are a lot of insects out there. Another thing you can do is to join insect identification groups on Facebook. It doesn't cost anything. You just sort of sign up, basically. You can post photos of a bug that you're trying to have identified. And they always like you to mention the region where you are because that can rule out or rule in certain types of bugs. That is really useful. Then there are some great websites for identifying insects. One is bugguide.net. And the other that I recommend is insectidentification.org. Both of those are excellent and they have so many resources on them. Don't forget your friendly master gardeners because we live for identifying bugs. <laughs> you know, you always feel so good when you've nailed exactly what it is. <laughs> well, I love how you do it in your book, Vegetable Crops and Potential Pest Problems. You make it so easy to be proactive and problem solve. You list vegetable garden crops by name, and then you have the potential problem and the culprits, then the solution. I just think that's just a very handy guide. What inspired you to put that all together? As a garden writer and a master gardener, I get so many questions about bug problems. And I kept thinking, why isn't there an easy-to-use guide out there? And of course, the focus of the book is for vegetable garden pests. However, there is a lot of crossover. Aphids do not discriminate <laughs> between the types of plants and white flies and spider mites and so on. Just don't mind answering the questions, but I really wanted to provide people with some type of a guide that made sense. It wasn't too sciencey. 
wanted to make sure that all kinds of gardeners from beginners through master gardeners would understand the information that I was trying to present. The nice thing is that I lucked out and I got to write this book and I'm so pleased with how it came together. As I was thinking about how I wanted to present the information, I thought, you know, a lot of times you don't know what the bug is. You just know that you're growing asparagus, let's say, and there's something chewing on the spears. How do you know where to go and how to find out what it is and how to deal with it organically? I put this chart that you mentioned together and it's massive. You can just go to the name of the crop you're growing, in this case, asparagus, and then you can read descriptions of the types of problems or damage that you might see. That's going to point you to potential insect culprits, as I like to say. At that point, it points you to insect profiles for each of those. Within the profiles, there's a description that explains what they look like and where they're found, what their life cycle is, which crops they're typically seen on, what their damage looks like, who their natural predators are, and then all of the different types of organic controls you could use for dealing with them. That chart, I think, is really the very best part of the book just because it makes it really easy to narrow down what you're dealing with in the first place. I was looking in the book. It's like, oh, man, this is great because it's simple. It's easy. You know what to start looking for. If you don't catch it before it gets there, it's easy to diagnose. One of the simplest layouts I've ever seen. I commend you on that. Thank you. I'm glad I thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder why somebody hadn't done it before. So it's just like, you just nailed it. And that's the whole thing with this book. I just kept thinking, there's got to be something like that. And I would do searches on the web thinking there's got to be something along these lines, but I never found anything that I felt was easy to use. Yeah, I feel very fortunate that I was the one who got to write the book. Fostering more good bugs in the garden is a good thing. How do you do that? I know you illustrated in your book, Insect Hotel. Talk about that for us. I am crazy about insect hotels, and we have three of them so far. First time my husband and I ever saw one was actually in Swiss Botanical Garden when we were on a vacation. And we thought, what is that? There's a label on it that was not in English. <laughs> and I thought, well, I think I understand what this is for. And it even had a little green roof on the top, which was very cool. We thought, okay, we want to do that in our garden. And when we came back home, that's when we started doing some searches on the web for insect hotels to try to understand better what they're for, how to create them. Insect hotel is a structure that is for beneficial insects to either overwinter in or to lay eggs that are going to hatch in the spring. It is so educational because it's something that kids and adults alike can watch and see how fascinating insects are. And of course, my goal is to teach kids that insects are are not for squishing. <laughs> you know, they need to understand what they are and what their life cycle is like. And, you know, most kids love bugs anyway, so that's cool. There's two rules for making an insect hotel. One is it needs to have a roof on the top, and that's to protect the inhabitants and the materials inside from the weather. And the other is that it should face to the south or the east, and that's to take advantage of early morning sunlight. Well, the types of insects that an insect hotel usually attracts would be things like solitary bees. We get tons of orchard 
mason bees and ours. Also beetles, ladybugs, lacewings, and so on. And all of these are fantastic predators. When you make this structure, you fill all the little nooks and crannies in it with natural materials. You will probably have most everything you need just out in your garden. You can use things like branches, pine cones, hollow plant stems, reeds, straw. If you have short logs, you can drill holes into them for the solitary bees to lay an egg in and them to hatch in later. You can use pine needles, tree bark, and so on. And I have a do-it-yourself project in my book showing how to make just your basic insect hotel. What I encourage everybody to do is to do a search on the web for ideas. Insect hotels also go by the name of bug hotel, bug stack, bug condo, <laughs> all these different names, but it's the same thing. Do a search on one of those terms. Look at the photos that come back in the results because it will blow your mind. What people have done all over the world, they are so creative. The sky is the limit as far as the design goes. Insect hotels are just plain cool. Do you ever have to put out the no vacancy sign? <laughs> I haven't yet. There's always a little room in there somewhere. The main thing we tend to get are the solitary bees. And that's fantastic because we have a small orchard in the front yard. And then the vegetable garden is towards the back. We get lots of great pollination, which is awesome. They like the ones that are more tubes like canes or board holes in the logs and things like that. Is that what the solitary bees go? Yeah, exactly. If a person had a log and they wanted to drill holes into them, the goal is for the holes to be about six inches long and about five-eighths of an inch in diameter. The reason they're that long is because the mother solitary bee will lay an egg and she puts a little bit of, I think it's pollen in the compartment. She seals it up and then lays another egg, puts in some food for it, seals it up and so on. So there will be multiple sections within each hole that have eggs in them. The latest egg is the first to hatch. wonder how the guy in the back gets out since he was laid first. Yeah, you would be kind of getting impatient. <laughs> the first ones to hatch are the males. I don't even understand how this works how she can lay a male egg. <laughs> but um, that's the one that hatches first. And then they emerge and they start flying around. The females hatch second. And then when they hatch, of course, they mate. And then they start laying eggs, browsing around your garden, eating pollen and so on. It's really quite fascinating. Are there any of the bugs that use the hotel that are predators? Oh, yes, definitely. Lacewings and ladybugs, beetles. I know there are a lot of bad kinds of beetles like cucumber beetles and so on, but there are a lot of and far more good beetles that are predatory. What is nesting in the pine straw and the pine cones? I'm fascinated with all these different things you're putting in there. So kind of curious what results are. In the pine straw, you would probably get ladybugs. And in the pine cones, that could be possibly spiders. And I know people cringe when you mention spiders <laughs> because we all have this sort of innate fear of spiders. Garden spiders are amazing predators. They will eat aphids, asparagus beetles, cabbage worms, Colorado potato beetles, corn earworms, cutworms, diamondback moss, leafhoppers, leaf miners, pill bugs, sow bugs, squash bugs, and stink bugs. 
They are fantastic to have in the garden. And I'm always telling people, don't squish them. Just leave them be. Let them do the good work that they do. When I mentioned that, yeah, you might get a few spiders in there. Don't stress about it because we have never had any dangerous spiders in our insect hotels. They just kind of do their own thing. They might hibernate in there and then go off about their business. What's the strategy for becoming a better gardener each year? I would have to say that keeping a garden journal is the most important thing that you can do. I always think I'm going to remember something from year to year. (laughs) We know how that works. You just forget things. It's like I mentioned with integrated pest management, where you're dealing with a strategy for trying to control a damaging insect and what you did and did it work. And if it didn't, what would you do next year to change that? It's the same thing with gardening. It could be how you dealt with an insect problem. It could be when you started your tomato seeds, let's say, indoors, and when you transplanted them out in the garden. When did they start producing? How long did they produce? It doesn't have to be super detailed. Put information in there that will help you for next year. Really think that keeping a garden journal is what makes us better gardeners year after year because you have something you can reflect back on. I even think that keeping a little bit of information about the weather is very helpful. I'm here in zone 5B. We get a very cold winter. We get frost that we have to think about before we plant anything that's particularly tender out in the garden. Keeping a garden journal is a very simple way to become a better gardener. When is your last frost date typically in 5B? Usually about the middle of May. That's not too far off from 7A. I mean, it's only maybe 30 days. That's not too bad. I was picturing you would get to plant a lot earlier than we do. (laughs) We always have warm shots in March, and there's a lot of people that want to start. And it's like, no, 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 it's too early. I'm always telling people, don't start your tomato plants too early because, of course, we all get excited. That's just normal. But what happens is people will say, oh, I'm going to start mine in February because I want it to be a big plant by the time it's time to go out in the garden. But you end up with these stressed plants that are probably not getting enough nutrients, they're pot bound and so on. So it is really important to keep an eye on your local conditions and keeping a garden journal. You can look at a calendar and count back and say, okay, I need to start my tomatoes on April 1st. And I know everybody thinks that is so late. For this area, that is right on the money. If you can keep that plant from being stressed, you're going to solve a lot of issues in the future. Yes, absolutely. And that's the thing. If you can keep your plants healthy, they are going to produce well. They're going to be better able to withstand insect attacks should they occur. It makes a huge difference. And that involves putting your garden in a sunny location because vegetables need six to eight hours of sun every day being aware of what your regional growing conditions are so you plant at the right time. Taking good care of your soil. That means adding in some organic compost to your soil once a year, not rototilling it because that damages the structure within the soil. Giving the plants the right amount of water, not too much, not too little. Spacing them appropriately so they're not fighting with each other for space, moisture, and nutrients and not more susceptible to insect problems when they're stressed. Avoiding the use of chemicals, of course. Keeping up with the weeds. I know nobody likes to do that, but (laughs) I recommend it. Keeping an eye on your garden, keeping that garden journal, 
In some instances, it's very important to keep your garden free of plant debris at the end of the season because there are certain types of insects that will overwinter on specific types of crop debris. Then they emerge in the spring and start the problem all over again. What's your earliest garden memory? My very earliest one revolves around my wonderful grandmother. I grew up in Southern California and she lived in Pasadena. So every so often my mom would take me to my grandmother's house and I'd spend a few days with her. She was an amazing gardener. She grew all these beautiful flowers, shrubs, vegetables, boysenberries is a very strong memory that I have, all different kinds of things. She would take me by the hand out to her garden. She'd show me how everything was growing and teach me just little simple things about how to care for the plant. Or maybe we would pick those boysenberries together and eat them. And there's nothing better than a homegrown boysenberry right off the vine, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I've ever had a boysenberry. Oh, no. Oh, no. Have you had blackberries? I have, yes. Okay. Well, it's, it's close, but they're even better. <laughs> oh, okay. Does it have seeds? Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I don't know if she was trying to make a gardener out of me, but it's one of my fondest, earliest memories, and I am so grateful to her for that. Did you continue gardening after that, or when did you really get into gardening? My whole family is really into gardening. My sisters are amazing mm -hmm. gardeners. My mom loved to garden. My dad was not really quite so enthused. He was more into the mowing and <laughs> that kind of thing. When I was 16, I decided I should try to grow vegetables. I had grown flowers before that, but I thought, well, this would be kind of fun. And when I could bring in fresh zucchini from the garden, let's say, and we'd have it that night for dinner, that was just the coolest thing ever. When my husband and I moved from Southern California to Spokane, we rented a little house that had a pretty good-sized garden space. And so we thought, hey, this would be fun to grow some vegetables here. We were only there for a year, but that made a big impact. Our first house that we bought was on an acre, so we always had a huge garden with that. Now our current home is on five acres. A big garden is a major feature here. Tell us a little bit about that garden. We have landscaped about half of that over the years. Yeah, I know that's a lot of work, but it's been a labor of love for us. Our vegetable garden, in my mind, is the centerpiece of the landscape. So we have 27 raised beds. Wow. And I know when I tell people that, they either look concerned like, hmm, this lady's a fanatic, <laughs> or they're envious. I'm crazy about raised beds. We've got them all on a drip irrigation system because we found that's the most efficient way to water them. We have a small hoop house that my husband designed and built. And so a hoop house is a plastic covered greenhouse, basically. Mm -hmm. It fits over two of our raised beds and we use it year round. During the growing season, we use it for growing warm season crops like peppers and melons. Believe it or not, even in my zone 5B garden, I can grow really cold tolerant vegetables during the fall and the winter months. So it's things like kale, corn salad, lettuce, and spinach. Those seem to do quite well. And I don't use any supplemental heat. It's a challenge, but I like a good challenge. <laughs> What's the differential between temperature in the hoop house or cold frame and the outside temperature? You know, I've never technically measured it with a thermometer, but if we leave the doors shut mm -hmm. in the summer, yeah, it's unbearable. <laughs> 
we have a door on each end. We keep the doors closed in the early spring when we're trying to get some of the warm season crops going so that they don't get too cold. And then as the temperatures start warming up, we'll have just one door open. And then pretty soon it's both doors open. And then it's not bad in there at all. And the plants love it. Yeah, yeah. I know the on my cold frame that when I've measured is about 15 degrees difference between the outside and inside. I was just wondering in the 5B, with it being colder there, if that differential was still there, but it sounds like it's still there and maybe more. I haven't measured the temperature in there. What I do is in the fall, let's say, I've started these cold tolerant vegetables ahead of time. I plant them out in the raised beds. The temperatures are still pretty decent. And when the temperatures start really dropping, I put some hoops over the beds and floating row cover on the tops of the hoops. Believe it or not, what that does is it actually increases my hardiness zone by one. That was something that I learned from Elliot Coleman, and he wrote the Winter Harvest Handbook. And he explains how when you use floating row cover, in addition to something being in either like a polytunnel or a greenhouse, it is increasing that hardiness zone by one. So it gives me a little extra. Now, we did have a nasty cold snap this winter, and it wiped out a few of the things that I had growing in the hoop house. I thought, well, okay, it's time for me to switch gears. <laughs> and so what I do if the hoop house isn't successful is I grow microgreens indoors. Those are just tiny little seedlings that you grow to a certain point and then harvest them and eat them as a salad. I still get my salad greens because that's the big thing I always miss in the wintertime is not having fresh lettuce or spinach or arugula or whatever to eat. If I grow it indoors, that solves the problem. Yeah. How many trays of microgreens do you have for you and your husband? I usually have two of the large flats going, but sort of alternating the start time so that by the time you're done with one, you can kick into the next one. How often do you harvest those? About once a week, I'd say. Earlier, we were talking about journaling. What did you learn last year that you're going to apply to your garden this year? Well, this is really embarrassing for me to admit this, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you anyway. I am always so excited to start planting my garden every year. And I know every gardener has the same affliction, right? And we talked about this earlier. So here in Spokane, I mentioned how our last frost usually occurs around mid-May. You know, I've always tried to be good about waiting until then to plant my warm season crops. So things like tomatoes and beans and squash and peppers. Mother Nature, being the rascal that she is, likes to sneak in another surprise cold snap. So there I am looking at the forecast, freaking out, running into the house to get blankets and tarps and so on, and going back out to the garden and covering everything and hoping that everything is going to make it through this unexpected frost. It is a nuisance and it makes me so stressed out. When it happened once again last year, and my husband was questioning why I was doing this to myself, I vowed to plant the tender veggies much closer to the end of May. I should know better, especially as a master gardener. I, I'm, I'm really embarrassed to even admit this. I guess I'm a slow learner. It just gets so exciting. You think, well, gosh, we're not going to have any more frost, right? And then surprise. 
The other thing is that I'm trying to do a better job of paying attention to the soil temperature before planting warm season crops because they can be so sensitive to cooler soil. One of the things that happens when the soil is cooler is that there are microorganisms that are not active yet. There are certain nutrients in the soil that are not available to plants. One year, I planted corn a little bit early. Kept thinking, why are those plants so yellow looking? They look awful. Well, the organisms that make nitrogen available to plants weren't moving around yet. And so they looked horrible. Then about a week or two later, all of a sudden the soil warmed up, the microorganisms were doing their thing, and the plants looked fabulous. It kind of goes hand in hand, keeping an eye on the weather and also keeping an eye on the soil temperature. And, you know, soil thermometers are not expensive. I think it's a great tool to have. This thermometer that we use, we got it with our compost setup, and it's got the really long stem to it. You can poke it in the middle of the compost pile and see how active it is and how warm it's getting. That's things that we like to do. Yeah. <laughs> We're easy to please. Yeah. What's the picture on the compost pile today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've gotten it up to like 160 degrees, which we thought was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of good things happen there. That's it? right. More with Susan after this. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. So you planted your crops too early. Did this make one of your videos? Well, I haven't really admitted it. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're going to make me have to do this. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to inspire you there. (laughs) Yeah, thanks a lot. (laughs) Talking about your videos, you have over 400 of these garden videos, which just blows my mind that somebody could do 400 garden videos. How did you accomplish that? I didn't set out to do that. If you'd told me this a few years ago, I would have said, no, I'm not going to make that many videos. What happened is in 2014, I attended this course called Video Storytelling. It was a regional workshop put on by Garden Communicators International, which is the professional organization I belong to. I thought, well, that sounds kind of interesting. You know, I'd never thought about shooting videos to share gardening information. When I saw how easy they were to do, and I I say easy with little quotes around that because there are a lot of work, as you know, with doing podcasts, I just thought, This is what I need to do because what a way to communicate with so many people. I have followers all over the world, which boggles my mind as it is. The other day, I was on my YouTube channel doing something, I don't know what, and I suddenly saw that I had over 400 videos and I thought, holy cow, I write a garden column for our newspaper that runs from February to October. I'm writing that weekly, and then I do a video with it. It might be on the same topic so that people can really see what I'm talking about, or it might be on a completely different topic, but always gardening. And the neat thing is that our newspaper has a website, which they embed my videos within my online column. And that is awesome because people can read the story and then they can look at the video. And a lot of times, if it's the same topic, I'm sure they're going, oh. Oh, that's how you do 
that. I just think it is the greatest way to communicate with people. I think people sort of like to see the face behind the words to see what my garden looks like, because almost all of the videos are shot there, just to see that I'm just basically a gardener and I have challenges and new things I've learned. And I'm always excited to share those with people. Well, how did you get into the garden communication world in the first place? That's an interesting story because it's not something I started out to do. If I had known this was going to be like the coolest career ever, I would have aimed for that when I was a lot younger. The thing that's happened is throughout my life, a series of opportunities have plopped into my lap. It's been one after another after another. So I started growing my own garden when I was a teenager. And then when my husband and I moved to Spokane, we rented this little house that had a big garden space. We had so much fun growing vegetables there. When we bought our first house, that was on an acre. So we had a big garden. Then, of course, our current house is on the five acres. So a big garden is definitely a major feature of our landscape. In 1982, I started working for our newspaper, which is the Spokesman Review. Not long after that, I became a member of Spokane's largest garden club. They have 500 members. So that tells you how big gardening is here. What I started doing is I thought, you know, it'd be fun to write articles for their newsletter about different kinds of gardening topics. And it wasn't anything big and fancy. It just was something I was enjoying doing. What I didn't know was that the club had been sending copies of their newsletter to the features editor at the newspaper. One day, totally out of the blue, she came to me and she said, you know, I really like your writing style and I'd like you to start writing our garden columns. And I thought, what? How does she know about my writing style? And on top of that, I didn't even know I had a writing style. (laughs) But as you can guess, I said yes, because I thought, wow, what a fantastic opportunity. That started quite a while ago in 2002, I believe. Not long after that, I had the opportunity to become a master gardener for Spokane County, which is something I had wanted to do for a long time. So I've been one for 20 years now. My boss let me change my work schedule so I could go through all the training because the training was always like 10 to 2, you know, and that's tricky on a weekday. That opened up opportunities for me to do a lot of public speaking about gardening and especially vegetable gardening, which is my passion. In 2013, a dear friend of mine, who's also a master gardener, asked if I would team up with her to write a regional gardening book called the Northwest Gardener's Handbook. I don't know if people realize how much work goes on behind the scenes to create a book, but it is a ton of work and it's very stressful. It was a great opportunity, and my friend and I are so proud of how that book turned out, and it's been a great seller. Then the next year, I went to that video storytelling course that I was telling you about. In 2016, Joe Lample contacted me, and he said, hey, I'd like to feature your garden on my program, Growing a Greener World. That was just another one of those out-of-the-blue opportunities and such an amazing experience. So suddenly, here I was in the spotlight for gardeners all over the country and all over the world, for that matter. And I was talking about organic gardening, which is so important to me. Then one other thing that's happened is because I'm a member of Garden Communicators International, there have been some interesting opportunities that have come my way. 
the last time they had an in-person conference, thanks to the pandemic, they offered what they called pitch sessions. And that's where you could schedule in a five-minute slot to pitch an idea for either a gardening book or a magazine article or something to the top publishers across the country. Okay, am I brave enough to do this? (laughs) So I pitched an idea for a book that had to do with organic vegetable gardening and dealing with vegetable garden bugs through organic methods. The first person I pitched the idea to was Jessica Walliser with Cool Springs Press. She loved the idea. We talked after I got back from the conference. Here comes a contract. And before I knew it, I was writing what became the Vegetable Garden Pest Handbook. I finished that project in December of 2020, and then the book was published last April. See what I mean? It's just been all of these unexpected opportunities, and I'm so grateful for every single one of them. Yeah, great story there. Don't know how it happened, but it did. What's coming up next? Oh, I'm mulling over maybe some more writing projects, but mainly right now I'm focusing on my garden columns, which just started up on February 20th, doing the videos every week and doing the social media and you know all those things that take up far more time than they should. <laughs> and we hadn't even talked about your blog, have we? No. <laughs> Yeah, that's one more thing that takes a lot of time. On your blog, is that a separate article from the weekly garden column? It's a combination of things. Every Sunday, because that's the day my column appears, I also post it on my blog, usually with additional information. I embed the video with it and so on. Then other days of the week as needed, if it's something that's really timely or something of interest, I'll do other blog posts and it might be on something new I've learned, something I've just done. For example, here in our Zone 5B garden, I love to grow artichokes. Typically, they're not productive in the first year, but that's all I've got because they don't make it through our winters. I use a technique called vernalization. It's where you sort of cold treat the seeds in the refrigerator for a couple of weeks before you plant them. Just recently did a post saying, by the way, I just wanted to let you know that I have started vernalizing my artichoke seeds. And that's a, a weird deal not to get on a tangent, but what you're trying to do, and I can't quite wrap my head around this, is you are trying to fool the seeds and seedlings into thinking, oh, I've already been through a winter, so I think I better be productive this year. (laughs) It's crazy, but it works actually. If I have something interesting to share with somebody, then I'll write a blog post so that a lot of people can see it and benefit by it. Blog post and your YouTube uh, videos, you relate that to all different growing zones. Yes. So it's not just 5B. Now, I mean, obviously it is hard to do something that's hard and fast for all zones because everybody has a different time when they get to plant things out in the garden and so on. I try to make it as useful as possible. I think occasionally there's a bit of a leaning towards my zone here just because that is what I grow in. Yeah. As long as as a reader or viewer that you're aware of that, and then you can make your adjustments to your zone and see where that works. Yes. And on my website, something I've done, I have a menu that's called Guides, G-U-I-D-E-S. And underneath that, I have one of the things that's there is when to start planting different types of vegetable crops. One of the charts is based on zones five and six because they're basically the same. The other chart is for all zones. A person needs to know when their average last frost date is. 
then I can say, start your tomatoes indoors five to six weeks before your last frost, more in relation to what a person's last frost date is. I do try to have a lot of information that is useful. I also have a guide that's preserving the harvest because I've found a lot of people aren't really sure what to do with the things they've grown if they have enough that they want to store them or freeze them or whatever to use through the fall and winter months. Do you have a funny garden or a plant store you can tell us? I do. (laughs) I'm laughing already. (laughs) You're going to think this is totally nuts. A few years ago, we got this brilliant idea to use a coyote decoy to keep the California quail out of our vegetable garden. That's because their favorite thing to nibble on is freshly sprouted seeds. I love the birds. We're both avid bird watchers. It's like, okay, just stay out of the vegetable garden for Pete's sake. We had seen a coyote decoy when we were at this lake property where a restaurant is. We kept seeing these decoys on the docks, realized, oh, it's to keep the geese from going on the docks and doing what geese do. (laughs) Hey, that's a great idea because we're always looking for creative ways to deal with problems. Ordered the decoy, we put it in the garden, and we were really smart about moving it around every day in the hopes of startling the birds. Like, oh my gosh, there's a coyote in here. We better hightail it out of here. (laughs) Well, it worked for like a week or two. And then the quail decided, oh, that's our new best buddy. (laughs) It didn't phase them in the least. We decided to name it Wiley Coyote, of course, from the cartoons. Pretty soon, Wiley became the main attraction of our garden. The side of our garden is right next to a private road. People are always walking or jogging by and so on. Whenever neighbors pass by, they started asking about Wiley, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Why do you have a coyote decoy and what is it doing and so on? What we started doing after we realized it wasn't going to do any good with the quail is we started putting him in interesting places. One day peeking out of the middle of our raspberry patch (laughs) or another day sitting in a wheelbarrow. (laughs) And it was really just to make them laugh. Pretty soon it was sort of this where's Waldo experience. (laughs) But people say, where's Wiley today? They would stop and they'd carefully look across our garden to see where Wiley was. Even though he didn't scare the quail on a long-term basis, which had been our goal, he was still a success because he ended up with his very own fan club. (laughs) (laughs) Neighbors have even bought him bandanas to wear. I mean, it is hysterical. So we've had him now, I guess, three years, and he'll be out in the garden as soon as the snow is gone, and we'll start up the whole thing all over again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sounds like Wally could support his own Facebook group. I think he could. I would have to do the work, and um, I'm (laughs) not volunteer. (laughs) In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I would have to say Joe Lample for sure. He has had the most positive influence on me. I have followed him for a long time. His approach to organic gardening and being kind to the earth has really resonated with me. I love watching his videos. I love watching Growing a Greener World. I also like that he has this passion for sharing his gardening knowledge with everyone. And I think it's been kind of contagious as far as I'm concerned. 
he really has been a mentor to me and he's given me a lot more confidence than I think I used to have. Also, I probably should mention that my colleagues in Garden Communicators International, they have been very supportive and great sources of inspiration for me because we all share what we're doing and working on and so on. I think that caused me to reach out more to people to share gardening because gardening is amazing. <laughs> What's your most valuable garden mistake? Oh, do I have to admit this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because everybody will learn from it. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, this is a painful one. I'd have to say underestimating the problem of tree roots infiltrating our garden. Gah. We expanded our vegetable garden a few years ago because, well, you can't have too many raised beds, right? Right. <laughs> The new beds are in a nice sunny location, but they're also somewhat near this little woodland that we planted a long time ago. When we bought our five acres way back in 1990, there was nothing. It was just an open piece of ground. And we wanted to have a little privacy. We wanted some native trees and shrubs to attract birds and wildlife and so on. There are spruce trees and pine trees and so on in this little woodland. And the first couple of years after we put those new beds there, the vegetable crops grew great. Then a couple of years ago, they started struggling. I thought, oh, they're not getting enough water, which actually was partly the problem. What I didn't realize is those tree and shrub roots, which were quite a ways away, headed for the water and the nutrients. They grew into the bottom of our raised bed. It has just been a disaster. Two years ago, my husband and I removed the beds, which was a job in itself, moved the soil out of the way, sort of filtered through the soil to get the roots out of there, beat the roots back the best we could. We didn't want to harm the trees, but it's like, hey, this is our vegetable garden. This is too much. What we did is we covered the area with two layers of heavy-duty landscape fabric in different directions, one north-south and the other east-west. We thought, oh, we're so smart, that's going to resolve the problem. Well, guess what? In the last year, we've discovered that the roots could even go through that tough landscape fabric. Now we're trying to figure out what to do about it. Don't want to get rid of the trees because, again, they're part of a privacy screen. They provide habitat for birds. We're mulling over our options. We could maybe do containers there, raise them up off the ground with supports or something. I don't know. And I hate to cut down on the size of our veggie garden because <laughs> we love growing vegetables. We love eating these amazing harvests. And even all winter long, we're eating these fabulous dinners every night with all of these things we've grown. And so we're just going, okay, we've got to come up with a plan B here because we know it's just going to get worse. I know a lot of gardeners deal with root problems. It's been a little humbling to have the same problem. It's good for me to know what things work and what doesn't. We'll just have to go from there. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? I would like to see everyone incorporate edible plants either in their landscape or designate areas for growing vegetables. I think that as a society, we have lost that knowledge of how to grow our food. So dependent on buying food from grocery stores, 
we don't think about how many miles those fruits or vegetables had to travel in order to get to our dinner table. Unless you buy organically grown produce, what you're purchasing has been exposed to a lot of chemicals. My goal is to let people know that it isn't hard to grow your own food. That has been the purpose of my garden columns, my books, and my videos. If I can have one other thing that I wish people would do, I wish homeowners and landscapers in general would ditch the lawn or at least greatly reduce the area devoted to lawn. The green grass is very soothing to the eye. It's a great place for kids to play on. I totally get that. But the thing is, turf grass is a barren desert when it comes to providing habitat for pollinators and other beneficial insects. No, it's not a very popular notion, but why not plant a flower garden or add trees or shrubs in the place of at least part of your lawn? You want a diverse landscape. That's the best thing that you can have. You think about the amount of maintenance and water and chemicals that a well-tended lawn requires, it just doesn't make sense in this day and age. I know that's not a popular notion. It is something I think people need to take into account, especially with problems with drought going on, water shortages and so on. I think it would be better to plant more ornamental and edible things in the landscape. All right, I can't let you go without asking you, what is your favorite plant? Well, how about two? Two is great. In the vegetable department, it's a toss-up between tomatoes, which it's my favorite crop because you can't beat the flavor of a homegrown tomato. Grocery store tomatoes just can't even come close to the fresh tomato. Also, I love growing cantaloupe. Fresh, sun-ripened cantaloupes are an amazing experience. If you wanted me to choose an ornamental I would have to say my favorite shrub is one that we've grown for a long time. It's a native shrub. It's the American cranberry bush, which is viburnum trilobum. It is super hardy down to zone three, which is crazy. It has these beautiful white lace cap flowers in the spring, and those are then replaced by these shiny green berries in the summer. They change to these glossy red berries in the fall. Those are very popular with birds, and since we love birds, we love having things that they can eat. It has gorgeous red foliage in the fall, so it's one of the highlights of our landscape. What have you recently learned that you didn't know regarding horticulture? In the last few years, I have been learning more about the soil structure and the role microorganisms play within it, and it is fascinating. There are so many different types of organisms that exist within different layers in the soil, and they do so much good for us, but we usually don't see them. For example, some of them fix nitrogen in the soil. Some of them make nutrients available to our plants. Some kill pathogenic microorganisms, like maybe a fungi, let's say, that causes bad things for plants. In the old days, the first thing we gardeners were always told to do was to rototill our soil or turn it over with a shovel so we could make it light and fluffy. Ever since I learned that this type of activity is damaging to the soil structure, I have totally changed my ways. So I minimally disturb the soil by just using a trowel to dig holes to plant seedlings or to make shallow furrows for planting seeds. We gardeners are never too old to learn new things and to put them into practice in our own gardens. 
I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. I have tried very hard to create an ecosystem that respects the role that the good bugs play, where I avoid using pesticides and other chemicals, and where I nurture the plants so they are healthy and productive. I have learned so much over the years about organic techniques and have really worked hard at putting them into practice. It is so easy to grow a garden organically. And that's the message I've been trying to share with all of the gardeners who follow me or they read my garden columns or watch my videos. Well, what are your future plans for your garden? Well, I'm pretty excited because this year we're going to try out agricultural insect netting over a few of our raised beds. That's for the purpose mainly of keeping aphids and cabbage worms off our plants also to keep certain types of birds, not just the quail, (laughs) from pecking on our salad greens. I am really excited to try it out. I've seen it over in England. I think it has been used more in the agricultural industry than in home gardening. I do use floating row cover, and that is a great tool for the purposes that I mentioned. I'm interested to see if the netting is going to allow more air circulation around the plants, which I think is really important, especially for cabbage family crops. Also, I'm going to be able to see how the plants are doing much more easily through the netting because with floating row cover, you pretty much have to lift it up to see how the plants are doing. I've been using bridal veil netting, which is also known as TULE, T-U-L-L-E, It's awfully delicate, so I'm trying to give something else a try that is more durable and has teeny tiny little holes to keep those small aphids away from my plants. So we shall see how that goes. Probably will be a video on that. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the video. Give us a rundown of what all is in your book. In the first chapter, I focus on why organic gardening is so important and also good cultural practices so that you keep your plants so nice and healthy and they're going to be more productive that way. In chapter two, we've talked about that huge diagnostic chart. And in addition to that, there are insect profiles on the most commonly seen vegetable garden pests that include all of the information you need to know and then lists of organic strategies and products that you can use against them. Chapter two also has a chart on beneficial insects because I really want gardeners to recognize them out in the garden so they know that, yeah, this is a good guy and I need to leave him alone. In chapter three, I have detailed descriptions of organic products that we typically find in garden centers and home stores and so on. It includes how to use them, when to use them, are there any concerns for using them? For example, neem oil, insecticidal soaps, and pyrethrins are toxic to pollinators. A lot of people don't realize that. You know, we think, oh, it's an organic product, so it's okay. I'll just use it any old time and as much as I want. No, you have to read the label and you have to be aware of, in this case, the timing of your application should be really early in the day or really late in the day when the pollinators aren't active. So I wanted people to have that information. And then the second half of Chapter three has a whole bunch of do-it-yourself projects that are for making traps or barriers, building your very own insect hotel, how to build a raised bed, and also one that has a cover that will keep insects out, how to make row cover hoops, and so on. So it's a lot of fun projects. Susan, tell us how people may connect with you. Well, I like to tell them that the easiest way to find me is by remembering Susan's in the garden, like as one huge word. 
So if they'd like to check out my website and blog, it's susansinthegarden.com. If they'd like to follow me on Facebook or Instagram, just remember at Susans in the Garden. And if they'd like to look at my 400 plus gardening videos, just go to my YouTube channel and that is youtube.com slash Susans in the Garden. This has been episode 47, Developing Your Battle Strategies for This Year's Bug Wars with Susan Mulvihill. Thank you, Susan. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.